Hi, I'm Andrew Rimby, the host of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, a public humanities podcast where I interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. And I'm married to Pippi, host of True Crime and Academia, an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. True Crime and Academia is a true crime podcast focused on crimes committed by or to those in academia. Episodes air on Tuesdays. Make sure you follow Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Become a subscriber to get unedited video interviews and our merchandise at patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. When you're listening to our podcast episodes, imagine that you're in a cafe eavesdropping on our conversations. Enjoy. Welcome back to True Crime B&B. This is Beth. And I'm Bailey. And today is episode 45. We are getting up there. Mm-hmm. But this week, we are once again flipping the roles. That's right. And I have been kind of itching to get back to an architect mayhem because it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. I think the last one I did was in August, so it's been like three months. Yeah. And it's some of the people on Instagram's favorite segment, so. That's right. They're so. waiting. They're itching for it, too. So for the eighth installment of Architect Mayhem, I'm going to share with you a really terrible story. Okay. This is a story of something that was stupid and senseless, and it was doomed to be revealed, and it never should have happened. David Michael Belaski was born March 21st, 1953, to Thomas and Anne Belaski. He was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he grew up with two brothers, Douglas and Dale, He was smart, musically gifted. He played the trumpet. I Mm. mean, brass is tricky. Yeah. After graduation from, and I'm going to try this. I looked it up. I think it's Emmaus High School. Okay. After graduation from Emmaus High School in 1971, David went to Northampton Community College. And from there, he went on to Syracuse University, where he graduated in 1978. David had started working for Wallace and Watson Associates, an Allentown architecture firm, as a project manager. For those who have no idea or who are architects who work in big firms, a project manager in a small firm is not what you're thinking of. A project manager in a small firm, and I know this because I spent 20 years doing this, Mm -hmm. is everything a typical project manager does, but also designs the building. So it's basically a design architect who also meets with the clients, who's responsible for the project schedule, the capital estimate, the manpower budget, designs the project, coordinates the engineering team, manages the drafting team to get the documents completed, and also handles construction administration and manages the construction contracts and project closeout. And I'm listing all that because I want you to see how well-rounded this guy was. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's why architects coming out of small firms are often more well-rounded than architects who grow their careers in large firms. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just a fact. People who do this have a great understanding of every aspect of getting design and construction projects completed. The company that David worked for, by the way, Wallace and Watson, is now still doing business as W2A Architects. And I think they may have a satellite office as well. Hmm. David Belosky and Brenda Bortz had both gone to Emmaus High School together. After high school graduation, Brenda had gone on to Kutztown State College and Lehigh University and became a school teacher. In 1980, Brenda and David married at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Trexlertown, which is in Pennsylvania also. Mm -hmm. David's minister at his church described him as a sweet man, a rare man, a whole man, 
and a kind spirit. David and Brenda started their family, and over the years, they brought three daughters into the world. David and Brenda shared with their daughters their love of learning and music and art. The family was solid and warm and amiable. He was such a loving dad that he was a leader in the Allentown YWCA Indian Princess program with his daughters. And I don't know what that program is, but it sounds adorable. Sounds like those dads who get up during the father-daughter dances and stuff like that just aren't afraid to act a little girly to be... Yeah, it just sounds like he was such a loving dad. Yeah, that's sweet. After they bought a family home, David was, like most architects, always doing some sort of project on his house. He was known for being handy and being able to fix or repair anything. He was considered in his circle to be an excellent woodworker. This is sounding very familiar, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Project over across from me. like that? (laughs) He was good at renovations and had renovated the top floor of the home as an apartment, and they sometimes rented it out. Mm -hmm. Seeing property ownership as a way to build his family's wealth, in 1983, 30-year-old David purchased a five-unit investment property and acted as the landlord to renters. David was highly respected at his firm. He was a solid colleague, and he could be depended upon. He had great architectural vision and design skills, which he could also skillfully translate to practical and buildable construction documents, and that combination is gold. Mm -hmm. Because you can be a pie-in-the-sky designer, but if you don't know how to turn that into something that can be built, then your design is not worth anything. Okay. But he was humble, he was honorable, and ego never got in his way. He was someone everybody wanted to be around. And in a 40-person firm, which they were at that time, the employees were close. He was considered an admirable, excellent architect, an admirable man. He was held in high esteem as a family man. And as time went by and David continued to prove his value to the company, he ultimately worked his way up the ladder to vice president of Wallace & Watson Associates. He was valued for his patience and his skills as a mediator and specifically was brought into projects where it might be complicated to achieve consensus on project direction and design strategies. That's very challenging when all of the stakeholders have different opinions and priorities. Mm -hmm. And David's forte was helping all the stakeholders to find common ground. I searched the local newspaper, The Morning Call, to see if I could find any mention of David in the news prior to the events that prompted this story. Mm -hmm. There were actually a bunch. Almost all of them were related to bid results for public works, like schools that had bid results for the construction contracts, and some of them were school board meetings and board members that were causing a ruckus about cost estimates and things like that. I don't know if you remember, well, you do remember because you just mentioned them, all the school projects that I used to do, Mm -hmm. but that's exactly what that life is like. You're constantly in meetings, and because it's public money, there's a lot of public interest and board members are very cognizant of how the public is seeing their decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what Gahanna just went through. Okay. So my hometown with the high school. Yeah. So over the years, David no doubt really had honed his ability to speak in public, to keep his cool when people are putting pressure on him over things they don't understand or mm-hmm. that they disagree with. But in articles published later, these board members spoke glowingly of him. One said, He had no equal. Even in the most trying and difficult times with our board, He remained a gentleman at all times. He'd receive every caustic, nasty comment with, yes, we can think about that, but this is the consequence. Mm -hmm. And that was said by Dr. Shirley Ball, then superintendent of Lehigh and Area School District. So if he wasn't doing a good job, she would have caught a lot of flack for that. Mm -hmm. David was a people person, and he had a way about him that just made people feel comfortable. And it's that kind of warmth, poise, 
and cool-headedness that would have gotten him promoted to vice president. He was an enormous asset to his company, and he was rewarded with status and responsibility. And despite being vice president, he still did project work. In November 1994, he had received accolades as the project architect for renovations he had done for the St. Peter's Union Church in Mukunji. Those honors were given by the American Institute of Architects as well as the Interfaith Forum on Religion, Art, and Architecture. Less than two months after these honors were bestowed upon him, on Tuesday, January 3, 1995, David walked out of the Wallace and Watson offices at about 4.45 p.m. He walked south on Hamilton Mall toward Union Street, where he typically parked his white van. He had planned to go to a friend's house to borrow a tool. David was the kind of guy who followed through. He was punctual, he was reliable, he made plans and he kept them. Mm -hmm. So on Tuesday, his friend was expecting him to show up at his house to pick up the tool as they had agreed, but David didn't show up, which set off alarm bells because he normally would have called to explain that he couldn't get there as planned. His wife and three daughters were expecting him to arrive home later, but again, he didn't arrive. Brenda went out looking for him. She first drove to the office, thinking he had gotten tied up and couldn't get out of there, which isn't uncommon for an architect to stay late, but David normally would have called her and said he was going to be late. But when she arrived and was told he'd left on foot at 4.45, she and one of his colleagues got in the car and drove around looking for him. They didn't see him, nor did they find his van. The following morning, Wednesday, January 4th, Brenda filed a missing person report to Allentown and McCunchie police, who began an investigation into his disappearance. But they were stumped. They had no clues as to what happened to David, and nobody could offer any kind of explanation. So, I'm sorry, did you already say, was his van where he usually parked it? Or no, they couldn't find that his That was van. gone, too. Okay. Yeah, there was just no sign of him at all. Okay. The Lehigh area was also unnerved by David's vanishing, because only three weeks earlier, on December 15, 1994, 26-year-old Joanne Katrinak and her four-month-old son, Alex, had also disappeared from the area. At the time of David Belaski's disappearance, Joanne and Alex's earlier disappearances were a complete mystery, so people were on edge. And because I know you're going to ask this, Joanne was found in April having been beaten and shot in the head. Mm -hmm. And her son, Alex, appeared to have died of exposure, not having been directly killed, but murdered nonetheless. Well, that's almost worse. He's just out there with his deceased mom. Yeah. He was only like 12 weeks old or something. But it was unrelated to David Belosky's disappearance Mm -hmm. at any rate. Two days after he had disappeared, David's wallet was found by an employee of the U.S. Postal Service at a new distribution center. The employee had found a wallet with a note taped to it. The note read that the wallet had been found on Irving Street, and it's assumed it was dropped into a mailbox to try to get it back to its rightful owner. Okay. Inside the wallet, David's driver's license was found. This was the first clue since David had vanished. At this point, police really didn't believe the disappearance was suspicious, but they wanted to find out what had happened to him. Police issued a request that whoever had found the wallet and placed it into the mailbox please contact police so they could try to get more information about specifically where it was found Mm -hmm. and then look around there to see if they found any more clues. A woman came forward and told police that she had found the wallet at Markham Boulevard and Irving Street in Hanover Township, which is also in Lehigh County. On Friday morning, January 6th, David's van was found by a truck driver who knew the Velaskis. The man had just read a newspaper article about his friend being missing, and then as he was driving through the area, he spotted a van that he suspected might be David's, and he called it in to the police. The sliding door on the right side of the van was damaged, and there was also a large dent behind the right front tire. The van was parked in an area that made the police feel certain they were now looking at a case of foul play. The state police began a helicopter reconnaissance of the area of the Lehigh River, 
but nothing was seen from the air. So at that point, a ground search was begun with 30 volunteers. The people located the ground search based on where the wallet was found and where a vehicle would have to travel to reach that area mm -hmm. and the wooded area near the river as a convenient dumping ground for a murder victim. So they kind of triangulated those three things and searched within that area. Mm -hmm. The search lasted only 10 minutes before David's remains were found a quarter mile away. His body was found wrapped in sheets and bedding with his wrists and ankles hogtied together. A twisted towel was still found wrapped around his neck. He had been lying on the frigid ground of a Pennsylvania winter for several days, and his body was completely frozen, so an immediate autopsy was impossible. By Sunday, January 8th, it was released to the public that David's manner of death was homicide. His cause of death had been strangulation, although he did have several other injuries that had not directly contributed to his death. Police also reported that they were pursuing some active leads, but no suspects were identified at that time. David's funeral was held on January 11th, 1995, five months shy of his and Brenda's 15th wedding anniversary. While no strong leads became publicly available, there was a speculative theory in the news that David may have been carjacked by the perpetrators of a bank robbery that had taken place within an hour of his leaving the office and one block down the road. But Weird. that did not turn out to be related. It was not the case that he was carjacked by them. It seems like for such a small area of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of weird shit going on at the same time. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Weird. Okay. Yeah. On Saturday, January 14th, 1995, news came out that after leaving his office on January 3rd, David had driven to his five-unit apartment building that he had purchased in 1983 to collect the January rent. It was David's normal day to collect rent. He came by every third of the month. Tenants also said he was there on weekends renovating one of the units and that he always worked alone. Also, sometimes he would come by after work for three or four hours to get other things done. Occasionally, he brought along one of his daughters who would play in the yard while he worked inside. In the winters, David would drive by and shovel the apartment sidewalk and then help neighbors with theirs. Always the helpful and humble so gentleman. Nice. He was just a really sweet person. But on the Tuesday that he disappeared, he had left work at 4.45 p.m. He had driven to the rental property and arrived there between 5 o'clock and 5.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. He showed up wearing his suit from work. One tenant said he seemed normal, not at all out of the ordinary, not nervous or upset. He just collected the rent and moved on. Another tenant said she considered him to be something of a friend and that he would chat with them, talk about his family. He acted like more than a landlord, mm -hmm. which in an area that was beginning to experience more and more burglaries, car vandalism, drug deals, that kind of crime, it was comforting to know that they could call their landlord if they had a problem. Yeah, you feel safer with somebody who's like... Looking out for you. Yeah, call me if there's an emergency. I'm not going to get back. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. And I think that's how they felt about him. Oh. Over the past 10 years, there had been several break-ins and thefts, domestic assaults, vandalism, which consisted of someone throwing beer bottles through two first floor windows. A man had been arrested for public drunkenness. There were a couple of drug arrests. And a man was convicted of stabbing another man. All of this in David's apartment building. So he was doing what he could to improve the lighting and the condition of the building, although he didn't have the power to improve the crime rate in the whole neighborhood. He could just do what he could do with his building. So was it just in a kind of bad part of town? I think it was just like? it was just a declining area. Okay. It was just, when he bought it in 1983, and then he owned it for 12 more years, a neighborhood can really go downhill in mm -hmm. 12 years. So I think that it just 
Probably wasn't the best part of town when he bought it, but it was even worse. Probably got a good deal and then was hoping for the best. Right, and he's, he's like, I can fix this up. I gotcha. So back to the comments by the tenants. Mm-hmm. A third tenant said David asked that rent be paid in cash. It was customary for everyone to pay their rent in cash. He had probably gotten enough rubber checks through the 12 years that he had owned that building that it was just the simplest way for him to manage the financial health of mm-hmm. this property. But as far as David disappearing on rent day... It was this comment about the cash that might have started to shed light on what could have happened to David. David's wallet was found with no cash in it, even though he had collected cash from the tenants the evening he was last seen. His body was also found with no cash. So if you've been keeping count, I told you that the building has five units. David was renovating one of the units, and we heard statements from three of the tenants. So what about the fourth tenant? Mm -hmm. On Friday, January 20th, 1995... 24-year-old Miguel Angel Moreno, the third-floor tenant of David's apartment building, was arrested and arraigned on criminal homicide charges without bail. Moreno, who was unemployed, had lived in the apartment with his girlfriend, Lisette Roman, and their two children for over a year. The apartment was searched because police asked for permission, and Lisette consented for police to search the apartment. Mm-hmm. Police found an area rug stained with blood and sent it for forensic analysis. If you've been following the Delphi murders arrest of Richard Allen, you've seen that the court documents in that case have been sealed for a time period because authorities say unsealing them might compromise the ongoing case. And most people who, who hear that are saying, whoa, that must mean they're looking at other suspects and they, they don't want to clue those people in. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know for sure yet, but it sounds like a reasonable... Assumption, yeah. Yeah. But the authorities in the murder of David Belosky also sealed the court documents because they said making the documents public could jeopardize the continuing investigation, just like Delphi. Okay. On January 23rd, police revealed that they believed there were two or more other people involved in the murder of David Belosky, and this was the reason for the sealed court documents. Five days later, so this is January 28th now, Mm -hmm. it was revealed that Miguel Moreno had set David Belosky up to be robbed by three people he knew. He said that David had come up to the apartment to collect the cash rent, where Moreno identified David as his landlord, which told the three other individuals that this was the man they were robbing. The three other men forced David back inside the apartment at gunpoint, and Moreno left the building. He said he had returned to his apartment 30 minutes later, and no one was there. And you'll find out this story's not exactly true, but yeah. it's it's in the right direction. Yeah, I don't believe him, though. <laughs> Lisette Roman, Moreno's girlfriend, was interviewed in the press, and she said that Moreno had asked her to let these friends of hers use her apartment for a couple of hours, and that they would get paid for the use of the apartment. She thought they were going in there to shoot up drugs, and she said if she'd known they killed someone, she would have immediately run and reported it. Mm-hmm. And when police asked for consent, she did let them search the apartment. So I don't know that she knew what was happening in there. Yeah, but at the same time that happened and then your landlord is suddenly missing slash dead. Come on, girl, you're not that stupid. Well, I I think later she kind of came around to that and said she'd started wondering what was happening. Okay. Also, Lisette's sister lived on the first floor of the building, and Lisette was in her sister's apartment when David showed up that day to collect the rent. The rent was $300 for the sister on the first floor. Then David went upstairs to see the rest of the tenants from the sister's apartment. Lisette and Moreno waited for the three men to leave the apartment so that they could go home. While they waited, they said they heard boom, 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 like something was falling down the stairs, and then they heard the three men leaving. A short time later, they went back to their apartment. They saw blood stains on the rug. 
and smell human excrement. The bedroom was a mess, and the bedding was missing from both her bed and her son's bed. Later, when police came around asking about David's last appearance in the apartment building, she started putting two and two together, like you just said. The case seems to be an example of pretty dogged police work. I think they worked really hard on this. They just kept asking questions, and as they did, they started getting enough information to be able to find the people involved. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of credit given to Allentown, McCungy. They named several other investigative bodies, but I didn't write them all down. So as the story started to come together, this is what actually happened. Miguel Moreno, who had been unemployed for a year, had an idea to rob David because he knew that David collected the rent in cash from all the tenants on the third of every month. Mm-hmm. He mentioned this idea to his uncle, I don't know if the guy's name is George or Jorge, okay. but everywhere that it was written, it was written as George, so I'm calling them George. Okay. His uncle, George Lopez, and Lopez took the idea to two of his friends, another George versus Jorge, George Ortiz Barbosa and Edwin Romero, and the three of them cobbled a plan together. On the day that David came to the building to collect rent, he went from apartment to apartment receiving payment. And Moreno met him at the lower level with $350, which was one month's rent. He told David that he wanted to pay through March and asked David to write out the receipt for him and follow him upstairs to his apartment where he had the other $700. Hmm. David wrote out the receipt and went upstairs with Moreno. They entered the apartment. Moreno told David he needed to go get changed for a $100 bill and headed downstairs. This is when he had gone downstairs to Lisette's sister's apartment. He engaged Lisette and her sister in conversation to keep Lisette from going upstairs and possibly interrupting the robbery. Inside the third floor apartment, Lopez, the uncle, was sitting on the couch pretending to watch TV and acting as if he wasn't paying attention to what was going on when Moreno brought David into the apartment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Romero and Barboso were both lying in wait in the bathroom. After Moreno left, the three men attacked David robbing him, hitting him on the head with a thirty-eight pistol, and beating him. Barbosa tried to use a string or a rope to break David's neck, but he said the string or rope broke instead. Lopez ordered Barbosa to go get a towel and a knife so they could cut David's throat to stop him from screaming. Mm-hmm. So Barbosa grabbed a towel and a kitchen knife. They tried unsuccessfully to cut his throat and then used the towel, twisted it into a ligature, and took turns strangling David with it until he succumbed. And it's just, it's horrifying that you almost wish they were better at this. Because at this point, they're straight up just fucking torturing him. That's right. Yeah, it was so brutal. God. They were so inept, and it was so brutal. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what's going through David's mind. It It has to be so surreal to be in a place where you feel safe. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, these people are doing these horrible, brutal things to you. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what happens in a person's mind when that's going on. I mean, there's got to be some element of just, oh, I've got to be thinking this is worse than it is. I've got to be just, like, scared <sighs> about nothing. And then they just start attacking. Oh, my God. I don't know. But at about the point where David had finally either passed out or died, I don't know which at this point, mm-hmm. Miguel Moreno had come upstairs and knocked on the door to see if the robbery was done yet and his uncle wouldn't let him in. Lopez told him that he didn't want to see what had happened in there because they had made such a clusterfuck of things that everything, you know, was a mess now. Lopez told him he didn't want to see what had happened in there, so Moreno had gone back downstairs where he was when Lisette heard the bumping of someone dragging something heavy down the stairs. Mm. 
Lopez then went through David's pockets, robbed him of the rent, his wallet, his jewelry, his wedding band, and the band keys. They hogtied his hands and ankles. I don't know why they did this after he had died. I assume it was to make him easier to drag. Maybe. Easier to transport. Mm -hmm. So they hogtied his hands and ankles and then wrapped David's body up in sheets and bedding and dragged him and his briefcase out to his van. Moreno later testified that he had seen his uncle sitting in the driver's seat of the van and that he saw Romero and Barbosa throw David's wrapped up body into the van. After they drove off, he had gone upstairs to the apartment and attempted to clean David's blood up off of the rug. They took David to the van. They drove his body to the area adjacent to the river and dumped his body there. They wiped the van down. They dumped it, throwing away the briefcase, ditching the wallet, and ditching the van keys. The whole investigation started to gain traction when Miguel Moreno was being interviewed by the police and made statements that implicated himself, his uncle George Lopez, Edwin Romero, and George Barbosa in the robbery plan and the subsequent murder of David Belosky. Barbosa and Lopez later concocted a story implicating Moreno in the murder, pretending they had only become involved when Moreno asked for help in disposing of the body. Okay. So, you know. Just pointing fingers at each other. Either way, you all were involved in this somehow. Sorry. Well, it just blows my mind that you call your uncle and ask him to help you rob somebody. And then your uncle kills the guy. And then he's like, oh, well, he's it's his fault. It's my nephew's fault. Mm -hmm. Lopez had later been apprehended in Orlando, Florida, hiding in a closet with clothes piled on top of him. Which reminded me of the guy who had killed the people in the Laura Jastry story. Found him underneath his stairs. Oh, yeah, the little compartment under the stairs. Yeah, in the, you called it? Harry Potter closet. The, yeah, hiding in the <laughs> Harry Potter closet. George Lopez and Edwin Romero were tried jointly and were convicted of first-degree murder and related charges. They were both sentenced to death. There were various appeals, but the sentences were upheld. They are both still on Pennsylvania's death row. George Barbosa pled to first-degree murder and received life in exchange for cooperation, and he is still in prison. Mm -hmm. In exchange for providing critical evidence, the state agreed not to pursue the death penalty against Miguel Moreno. He ultimately pled guilty to third-degree murder and was sentenced to 20 to 40 years. An appeal document that I found that had been filed by George Lopez in 2019 made a comment that Moreno no longer appears to be in the Pennsylvania inmate locator system, so it seems that he was released prior to 2019. Paroled somehow. Probably so. Well, this might be a stupid question for a true crime podcaster. What is the difference between, I know, between first and second degree, but what's third degree then? Does that mean that you incited the murder, essentially? I really don't know the answer to that. I just wonder, what's the differential? I don't know. Hmm. It might be because he had given the critical evidence that allowed them to find the rest of the perpetrators. So it's like closer to a manslaughter versus... Maybe so. I don't know. But But it was... hmm. I mean, he he definitely played a role in this. Oh yeah, they would never have been there if he... Never would have happened without him. Mm -mm. A few days after the arrest of Miguel Moreno, Brenda Belosky, David's widow, in total grace and class had written a letter to the editor of the morning call and her letter was just thanking everybody in the community telling them that they had been so caring and supportive and she didn't know how to thank them or what to say to such overwhelming expressions of kindness and support and that she wanted people to know that all that they had done to lift the family up was sincerely appreciated and would always be held dear david's family understandably stayed very private and very tight within their own circle during the aftermath of this horrible thing that happened to him and i respect that and that's why i haven't mentioned his daughter's names or where the family is now Mm -hmm. but there have been some things 
outside the family that have happened over the years that I think are worthy of sharing. Okay. A guy named Kirk Kohler, who had been a friend and co-worker of David's at Wallace and Watson, organized at least two bike rallies that raised money for David and Brenda's daughters for a college fund. Mm-hmm. The first year alone raised $17,000. Wow. I didn't find the proceeds from the second year, but I think $17,000 on the first year was pretty telling of the effect that David had had on the community Mm -hmm. and how the community was affected by his loss. And there also are, or at least have been, two scholarships in his name. One was from an endowment that was for students graduating from his high school, Emmaus, and I can't find any recent awards listed for that one, but I couldn't find any recent awards listed for any scholarships from Emmaus. So it may still be going on, but I do know that it was going on at least, you know, several years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was called the Class of 1971 David Belosky Scholarship. Mm -hmm. And from the first college that he attended, Northampton Community College, before he had gone to Syracuse, that scholarship is called the David M. Belosky Scholarship Endowment. And the description of it reads, This scholarship is named in memory of David M. Belosky, a 1973 graduate of the Northampton Community College Architectural Technology Program who distinguished himself as an architect and vice president of Wallace and Watson Associates. This scholarship was established to provide an annual scholarship for a second-year architectural technology program student who has demonstrated outstanding academic achievement and who intends to complete a baccalaureate degree in their field. So David Michael Belosky was a hell of a good guy. Mm -hmm. He touched people's lives. He created beautiful buildings while navigating the treacherous waters of public money. He impressed everyone he worked with, colleagues and clients. He loved his work, his family, art, music, life. He did everything right. Mm -hmm. Everything. This man worked his whole life and he did everything he was supposed to do. He was good and he was nice. He was kind to people. And he was brutally, brutally murdered over what amounted to about $1,300. His life for $1,300. Cases like this, where the person is just this fantastic human being, Mm -hmm. diminished to being worth $1,300 is just sickening to me. And what are you going to do with that? That's not even... They didn't even have any real (laughs) chance of getting away with it. These people who murder these beautiful humans... And there's no way they're going to get away with it. It's absolutely for nothing. All they did was exercise their worst impulses to get $1,300. And now they're all in prison. Well, Moreno's out now. But But what did they gain? Nothing. They gained nothing and they took this amazing human out of the world. You're doing it in his property. It's not like... I mean, do it at least in somebody else's unit. You know what I mean? That's just stupid. It's right. So I mean, stupid. To even do it in the building. It's To think that people aren't going to realize, oh, well, I paid my rent. I saw him today. Mm-hmm. And, oh, he's, he disappeared last night after I paid my rent. How stupid do you fucking have to be? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm cussing so much, but it's no, just... you're right. It's for nothing. And it's just... It's all for nothing, and it's just... And it makes me sick. He was, what, 41? Makes me sick. He was 41. Ugh. And that is the upsetting eighth installment of Architect Mayhem. Please bring something better to the table. I'm going to try to cheer us up so nobody dies in this story. That's good. That is good. But I am going to apologize to our victim of this because it's a South African story once again. And I looked up all the pronunciations, but I'm going to butcher it. I already know. So my apologies. (laughs) All right. Well, good luck with this. Yeah. Good luck to me. I'm going to tell you the survival story of Mlemgi Gwala, 
who was born April 12, 1991, and grew up in Chesterville, South Africa. Okay. Early in his life, it sounds like late teenage years, he ended up suffering with drug and alcohol addictions, and eventually he had to drop out of college in his early 20s. It said at the age of 22, he was hospitalized because he was facing liver failure. Oh, wow. And that's very young to go through that. Wow, that is very young. So after that, it was kind of like a wake-up call where his family said, you can come live with us, get sober, get clean, and find something else, maybe go back to school once you feel better and everything, and that was a new start for him. Well, good for him for turning the corner. Yes. Afterwards, Malengi loved to swim, and they lived by the beach, so he eventually joined the Marine Life-Saving Surf Club as a lifeguard. That was his workplace for a while there. And after he realized how strong of a swimmer he was, and he really liked being out in the water, so he started doing that, and then afterwards he would go running and stuff like that, and it pretty easily progressed into running triathlons and wow. competing in those around the That's area. That's a big turnaround. Mm-hmm. In 2015, he began traveling. So like I said, he was doing triathlons in that general area of South Africa, but then he started traveling internationally to compete in those and kind of getting his ranks up a little bit. Wow. But he kept his day job at this point still as a lifeguard. Mm-hmm. His usual day would look like this, just to show you how committed he was to this. Okay. In 2018, he had two daughters at the time, one that was one year old and one that was four years old. Okay. He would get up first thing in the morning, sounds like about 3, 4 a.m., before the sun ever rose, and he would cycle on his bike 65 kilometers. Holy crap. And then run on the beach an additional five kilometers... And then be home to cook his daughter's breakfast by 7 a.m. Holy crap. Then he would go drop them off at school or daycare and would work his day job as a lifeguard. And then after work, he'd typically do a three-kilometer swim to end his day and then go back home and spend the rest of the evening with his daughter. So this was... Wow. He trained like a pro. Yeah. For years doing yeah, this. That's amazing. I don't have it in me for sure. Nor I. Mm-mm. On March 6, 2018, he was 27 years old at this point. While he was out on his usual early morning bike ride before sunrise, he was doing the usual routine. He went through a bike path through Durban, South Africa, which is a major city. It's pitch black. While he's biking down the path, three men just jumped out of the bushes in front of him with a gun and demanded him to get off of his bike. And he thought, well, they're going to steal my bike and anything else I might have on me. So he begins offering, here's my wallet, here's my cell phone. Right. I don't want to fight, you know? Okay. They, however, didn't want any of that, and they kept shouting at him with the gun, telling him to get back and stuff, but they were speaking in a language he didn't recognize, so he couldn't understand what they wanted him to do. Well, that's not fair. No. You can attack somebody, at least speak a language they can understand. So then the men turned even more aggressive and ended up dragging him. They ganged up on him, essentially, dragged him back further into the bushes behind the trail where they had jumped out from. This is rough. They all together, three men, held him down and started pulling out a chainsaw from their bag. That's what it said in all of the articles. Holy crap. I think it was a manual chainsaw. You know those ones that you, it looks like a big rope, but it's got the chainsaw chain, essentially, that you can just saw through a tree. Okay. On you. So it's like a manual one. It's not like a (laughs) chainsaw that we've got. Yeah, right. So that's what they pulled out of their bag. And as two of them held him down, the third one began just sawing through his right leg. Jesus fucking Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Again, he doesn't speak their language. They're communicating and shouting to each other something. He doesn't know why the fuck they're doing this. He's so confused. Is he even in competitions at this point? No, he's just training he's and just does a it for guy. fun. He's just a guy who likes to be fit. Exactly. Yeah. And these guys are attacking him and he has no clue why. Mm-hmm. This is horrifying. It's the most <laughs> fucked up thing. Yeah. Oh. So they, the man who was sawing through his leg ended up getting about 80% of the way through that oh leg. Oh, my God. And then he grew frustrated because he couldn't get all the way through. So he switched to the left leg. Oh, my God. I cannot it makes you imagine sick. the pain. It makes I cannot you sick. even. I know. Was he conscious? Mm-hmm. This entire time. Oh, my God. After they started on his left leg, he actually kind of got a little bit lucky here. The headlights of a passing car, even though it was like 4 o'clock in the morning, right outside of the bushes where they were, it flashed on them just enough as they were turning a corner and scared them away. So they packed everything up and ran off and left him there. And it sounds like he was kind of off the trail and then they went down into a ravine. So now he's down here in a ravine in a pool of his own blood with two legs that have been sawed through. And he's somehow got to find a way back to the road. So he ended up standing up. And he kind of hopped on the one leg, because like I said, they got most of the way through the right leg, but the left leg was mostly just cut. And then eventually crawled the rest of the way up to the road and flagged down a car. That car happened to be a security guard who was driving into work that day. So the fact that he was able to get himself up that hill, I mean, that's like Mary Vincent stuff right there. Just the amazing presence of mind and will to live that it takes for him to do that is just amazing. The fact that he hasn't lost so much blood that he's just passed out. If you think about it, though, the amount of arm strength and leg strength and all of that combined, if he wasn't a triathlon athlete doing this all the time, yeah. using all the different parts of his body, yeah. who knows? He probably I don't know wouldn't how have had the strength. don't know how he would have gotten up that hill. Yeah. Wow. So that security guard took him to Albert Luthuli Hospital, and then they decided after they got him stabilized, they needed to get somebody who who could possibly reattach his leg fully, and so therefore he was transferred to St. Augustine's Hospital in Durban. I will tell you right now, the men behind this attack have still not been caught. Oh, good. What? Yeah, so we still have no clue what the motive behind the attack These was. These monsters are just out there sawing people's limbs off on randomly on the side of the road? Mm-hmm. Have there and been other attacks that have been like this that have been reported? Mlengi has a couple of theories as to what could have happened. He thinks that because he was in the last three years starting to do this a little bit semi-professionally and was traveling outside of South Africa to do it. Maybe they recognized him because in the town he was kind of a big deal. Either they saw him on a nice bike and thought, oh, he's an athlete. Clearly he has a lot of money put into this. Maybe he has a lot of money on him. Or he thinks crime like this, brutal crime and robberies like this in South Africa are really unfortunately not that uncommon. Yeah. So... He doesn't know if they just saw him on a nice bike and that's why, or if he was recognized. I wonder if it was a crime of opportunity. Do you remember Natalie Beerley, the Austrian bike rider? Oh, yeah, yeah, and she was knocked off her bike. You would think that she was targeted because she was famous. Mm -hmm. The guy didn't even know who she was. She just happened to be there when he was enraged about his girlfriend. That's true. Yeah, wow. Oh, my God, what a brutal That is kind of crazy how similar those stories are. 
Once he was finally seen in the the second hospital, the attackers had somehow missed the main artery in his right leg. And so the doctors looked at it and said, you know what, we think we're going to be able to save it. And they were able to successfully reattach that leg. So all the blood he was losing, at least there was still enough circulation to keep his extremities alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and That's amazing. And even with the amount of nerve damage, they were still able to reconnect everything so that he could use it properly. Wow. People around the area, like I said, he was kind of a local celebrity. So once they found out that this awful thing had happened to him, they lined up and all together started crowdsourcing to get some money to pay his medical bills, including the rehabilitation that he would have to go through and the therapy, because that's very fucking traumatic. Absolutely. And so he was actually only in the hospital recovering for three weeks until he returned home. In June of 2018... Malingi posted a video of his first time back on a stationary bike on Instagram. Said he was working with his physical therapist to get him back in shape and everything. That was June of 2018. He was attacked with his leg chopped off March 2018. Wow. Three months later, and he's already back riding his bike. Nine months after the attack, he then completed a solo training cycle from Johannesburg to Durban, which is 567 kilometers. Wow. By himself, only nine months after having his leg almost fully chopped off. Wow. Yeah. So that's what, 350 miles or so? 352 miles, yeah. Look at me with my translation. I'm pretty impressed. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, in August of 2020, Malengi's leg developed an infection, and it kept going on and on and on. He would go in, get antibiotics, and then go away, and it just kept coming back. And so he was in so much pain, this is becoming such a hassle having to take time off work and not train anymore to heal this up. He and the doctors eventually decided just to go ahead and amputate it, which is right below the knees where the saw had gone through, so that's where they decided to go ahead. Oh, I was imagining it was higher on the leg. Yeah, it was right here below his knee. So he got lucky, he still has use of his knee and stuff. Mm -hmm. But since then, he actually recently, in the last two years, got sponsored by a company called Orca South Africa, who does sponsorships for triathlons. On March 21st, 2021, he competed in his first race with his new prosthetic leg in the South African Championships in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Okay. He ended up winning that race and took second place overall in the whole competition. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then just in September of this year, he competed in the African Triathlon Championship and the Europe Triathlon Paracup and came in first place in both. That's amazing. So he actually says, I was so determined to overcome this. I'm literally a better athlete without a leg than I was before because he's so hell-bent on not letting that stop him. So, Well, I think that endurance sports like this mm-hmm. are very much mental. I think yeah. it's such a mental game. And yes, obviously, physically, it's grueling and it takes a lot of training. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the mental capacity to keep... Not the mental capacity, the mental strength... Mm-hmm. To keep going when your body's like, let's quit, let's stop, let's sit down. Yeah, it's just an endurance that most people wow. never know. That is just mind-blowingly amazing. Yeah, so, and it was crazy. He literally competed in the first one, like the 19th, and then on like the 25th. So he's not even taking a break and came in first in both of wow. these competitions. As of now, his goal is to make it as a South African finalist to the Paris Paralympics in 2024, 
here at the True Crime B&B, we're rooting for him. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'll be so excited. I'll secretly fangirl because I'm following him. He deserves so many more Instagram followers. So if you guys want, he's verified and everything, but he only has like 4,000 followers. And I think that's incredible. Well, spell his name. You can find his handle on Instagram. It is M as in Mary, H-L-E underscore G-W-A-L-A. And he has documented everything from the moment he woke up in the hospital to all of his first, all of the... It's just really cool to see This is such a... Just an amazing story. And I don't even know his name, so... But yeah, he's just a really cool dude. And you can tell he is so humble in all of the interviews I've seen of him. It's really cool to see. That is amazing. Progress he's come through and... I'm so happy that he has overcome that because that was such a senseless attack. There was... Mm-hmm. It, it's like David Velosky. What the hell were they trying to accomplish? Uh-huh. Wow. But I just think what? it's a story I've never heard, and I just wanted to bring some light because his story and how well he's doing, and I'm just really freaking proud of him because that's a lot to overcome. Well, Malengi... Mal- Mal- Malengi... We're so sorry. We tried to look it up. <laughs> Malengi Guala, I am a fan, and I support you. Mm-hmm. And I will... And if you need a place to stay when you're Atlanta... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We have a spare room. We got you, boo. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, that was a great story. I'm so sorry he had to go through that, but I am mm-hmm. so happy he overcame it. Oh, and I forgot to say one of the good things. The security guard that found him and got him to the hospital safely, they're like best friends now. Awesome. They, he called him his blood brother, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now they're like best That's friends. Sweet. They call each other every week to check up on each other, and it's just. Very sweet. So he got he got some things out of this terrible situation. Well, that's how survivors are. They take the terrible things that happen to them, mm-hmm. and they don't just get through it. They make they make hay while the sun still shines. Mm-hmm. You know, good for him. That's all I got. Awesome. <laughs> I think that's it for episode forty five. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate you every time you're here. Once again, we'll be back for episode 46 next week. Love you guys. Love you as always, crime fam. Bye. Bye. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Our crime family, I hope you're here, and this is episode 45, and that didn't make any sense at all. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not here, then who the hell am I talking to? Did you say, I hope you're here? (laughs) Good news, guys. We all survived another week. So today is the eighth installment of of Meow Mayhem. Architect <laughs> Meowum. One of those things they have the dentist. Yeah, just <laughs> you know, clue those people up. Yeah. Clue those people in. In. <laughs> the toilet's still running. Let me get that. Oh. <laughs> Why are you doing this? I thought you were looking for and I was like, she's literally sitting on top of the sheep right now. And I don't know what she could be doing. It's not her fart. It's not her fart. It's not her fart. <laughs> it's not her fart. The toilet's running. Okay, sorry for the delay. Sorry for the delay. The bedroom was a mess, and the bedding was missing from both hers. She's really annoying the fuck out of me today. She's been screaming since I got up. And now she wants to go through the one closed door. Then open it. <laughs> Grow some thumbs, you little stupid cat. All right, go. Get out. Go! Get out! Get out! And the toilet is still running. What the hell's going on around here? Oh, she's about to jump up there. Jump up and shut your mouth. Okay. The toilet is still running though. How yeah. did you find him? 
<laughs> or or you can opt out of that question if you don't. Well, want he's to a beautiful answer. man. First of all, he's only thirty one now. So yeah, so I followed him on my Instagram. My thirsty ass was like, hello. <laughs> yeah, that means a lot because Bailey won't even follow me on Instagram. That's true. <laughs> now she's asleep. Do you want to scream until she wakes up? Now. 